I believe that Elon Musk is the richest man in the world. If he's not, he's always in the running. Uh, this is a guy with a lot of money. And so I was really interested to discover a few uh, year or two ago that Elon Musk had decided to sell off all of his properties, all of his houses. So like most gazillionaires, people with all the money, uh, he had a lot of houses, mansions everywhere, and he was selling them. And, and he sold them until uh, I think November of last year, he had just one mansion left and he sold it in November. And now supposedly Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, is living in a house that he says cost him about $50,000. Um, and, and that's just fascinating to me. It's fascinating that this guy with more money than we can count has chosen to, to go all the way down to like a regular person home and then to not spend any more money on himself in that way. Now, uh, Elon Musk is a weird guy. I don't know if we can always trust everything he says on Twitter, okay? Um, but it, it got me thinking. I started thinking, well, what if he took that same philosophy with the rest of his life? And this might be too much of a stretch for Elon Musk. So let's imagine something instead. Let's imagine that each of you uh, have Elon Musk's money, okay? And, but, but it comes with a catch. The catch is you can't spend it on yourself. Um, you have to have a regular house and a regular car and a regular everything. Um, and all the rest of that money can get spent any way you want as long as it doesn't get spent on you. The question is, would you take it? I mean, it seems great, right? I mean, it seems like a really good deal. And think of all the good you could do with all those billions and billions of dollars. But I think it would get hard after a while. So, uh, you know, imagine you are in your $50,000 home and you think, boy, I'd really like to put a new furnace in. I'd really like to maybe renovate a little bit, maybe, maybe redo my kitchen. Ah, but I, I have all the money in the world, but I can't spend it on me. Boy, you know, I, my car's getting kind of old. It'd be great if I could replace it. Or I, I ride the bus to work. I'd love to have my own car. I got all the money in the world, but I can't spend it on me. Kind of a weird idea, right? Um, I, I got all the money in the world, and boy, I, I really wish I could just eat out at restaurants once in a while, but I always eat at home. I always make my peanut butter sandwich with no jelly because jelly's slimy, and that's it. Uh, and, and, you know, this all kinds of interesting implications. I'd love to buy new clothes, but I buy used clothes because I don't have money to spend on myself. Um, but that could get pretty serious if you took it to an extreme, right? I have a serious medical condition. Uh, I got all the money in the world, but I can't use it to go to the best doctors in the world. I can just go to whatever my little insurance allows me to have. I got arrested for something I didn't do. I'd like to get Johnny Cochran to come and be my lawyer but I can't afford that, even though I have all the money in the world because I'm not going to spend it on me. I know somebody who is committed to doing me harm, who in fact is committed to probably trying to take my life. And I'm certain with all that money, I could buy a lot of influence and a lot of power and I could do something about that problem, but I'm committed to not spending any of that money on me. Would you take the money? So Elon Musk isn't a good example for this, but, but Jesus is, right? This is exactly what Jesus does. Jesus comes into our world, uh, lives a normal life um, with all the power in the universe, but with a commitment to not use it for himself. And it's kind of extreme. It's so extreme 
uh, that Jesus won't use his power when people come to arrest him or murder him. And, and as we read through the story of Scripture, um, we, we get this idea that his commitment um, to, to self-denial is really quite essential to his understanding of, of what God has sent him to do. So when he sees sick people, he will heal them. When he sees dead people, he'll bring them to life. When he sees um, poor people, he'll miraculously give them food. But when he's sick or hungry, he won't use that same power to help himself. And, and as we read through the Gospels, um, we get this sense that, that that decision about what kind of Savior he wants to be uh, is, is really essential to his um, work and ministry. He wants to be the kind of Savior that has um, the ability to do everything for us and, and nothing for himself, a, a sort of a self-denying Savior. By the way, um, just for fun, there are some great stories that think about what if Jesus was different? So you guys are all familiar with fan fiction, right? Fan fiction, you know, I love Harry Potter, so I make a moon story about Harry Potter. Well, there's some great Christian fan fiction from the 200s and 300s AD. Uh, and one of those pieces I've mentioned before is the infancy gospel. Uh, the infancy gospel is one of my favorite pieces of Christian fanfic. Uh, so it imagines what Jesus would have been like as a child. Uh, and it's wildly heretical, okay, but really fun. So you've probably heard me share this before, but there's a great story where Jesus gets angry with one of his playmates. Jesus is a child at this point, and he gets angry with one of his playmates, and so he smites him dead, right? Just divinely smites them dead. And then his parents come along and get angry at him for smiting him, so he brings his playmate back to life, right, to solve the problem. Just love it. There's another moment in the infancy gospel where uh, Jesus is playing, um, making mud pigeons on the Sabbath. Now, you can't make things on the Sabbath that's a violation of the fourth commandment. And so when his parents come and catch him doing that, he turns all the mud pigeons into real pigeons and they fly away, right? And I just think that would be awesome, right? Uh, if I was God, I would be that kind of God, right? Um, but it's laughable because Jesus wasn't, right? I mean, we, we know that's not the kind of Savior Jesus chose to be. Instead, um, he was a Savior who does everything for us and nothing for himself. Uh, he's not a self-indulgent Savior. He's a self-denying Savior. And I think we see that most clearly uh, in these two stories in the New Testament in the Gospel of Matthew we read tonight. Uh, the first story is the story of the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness, right? And, and as you uh, may recall, he has been in the wilderness for 40 days, so a long time. And he hasn't eaten during this time. He's been fasting, and that's a really long time to go without food. Normally, um, when a person fasts, they fast from sun, uh, sun up to sundown, right? So that could be 8, 12 hours, something to that effect, and then you eat. So normally in the Bible, when you're fasting, it's not that you're not eating all day long. So you're not eating from sun up to sundown. Um, but we're told that Jesus takes this a little more um, intensely. And so um, we're told he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Okay, so no food at all for 40, 24-hour periods. And he's famished. And so Satan comes to him and he says, turn these stones into bread if you're God. Now, by the way, um, you may know this already, but in the Greek, there's a, 
uh, it doesn't really matter. There's a, a way of phrasing a sentence. This is not Satan saying, I don't know if you're God. He's saying, since you're God, do this. Okay? So Satan has no doubt whether Jesus is God, and he has no doubt that Jesus knows he's God. He's saying, because you're God, you should do this thing. You should make these stones into bread. Now, now pause for a minute. There's nothing immoral about making stones into bread. I've read the whole Old Testament, and there is no place in the Old Testament where it says, thou shalt not use thy divine power to turn stones to bread. Okay? There's also nothing in the Old Testament that has any rules about how long you have to fast when you've been going 40 days and 40 nights. But 40 is like a pretty good number. He should be done. So there's, there's no reason uh, why this would be a sin. And this is really important um, because I think we usually assume that when Satan comes to tempt us, he comes to tempt us into sin. That's not what he's doing with Jesus. He's not trying to get Jesus to sin. Okay? Something else is going on. Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to use the power for myself. Uh, and then Satan says, well, okay, let's go to the temple, and you can stand on top of the temple and jump off. And the angels will catch you. It says so right here in Psalm 91. And then you'll fly down, and everybody will see you fly down, and they're all going to believe you're the Messiah because you're flying down from the temple, and won't that be great? And again, there's no sin here. Right? There's nothing wrong with jumping off the temple and letting angels fly you down. It is right there in Psalm 91. And, and there's certainly nothing in the Bible that says you shall not jump off the temple and see if the angels catch you. Um, so Satan's not tempting Jesus to sin. It's something else. See, I, I think that the, the work of Satan in these first two temptations is to get Jesus into a place where he's willing to indulge himself just a little bit. Just, just, let's just practice your self-indulgence a little bit, Jesus. You've been doing all this self-denial for so long. Aren't you tired of having all that power and not using it? Aren't you tired of having all that power and yet still going through the aches and pains of normal human life? Wouldn't it be great if when you stubbed your toe, you could just miracle it better? Wouldn't it be great if you, when you were hungry, you could just miracle yourself full? You can do it, Jesus. Let's just try it a little bit. Just try a little bit of self-indulgence. And, and here's what I think about temptation. I think very often Satan is interested in tempting us not just to sin, but first to a little bit of self-indulgence. Um, in the story of King David, um, we all know the, the greatest tragedy of his life is the adultery he commits with Bathsheba and the murder he commits to cover up that adultery. Um, but I think if Satan had come to David and said, hey, would you like to commit adultery and murder? David would have said, absolutely, I do not want to do that. Right? That is not a consideration for me. That's not what Satan does. You know what Satan does to David? He says, hey, I got an idea. It's spring. And this is the time when the kings go out to war. Why don't you stay home? Why don't you just stay home? No, no sin in that. Nothing wrong with staying home. Just a little bit of self-indulgence would do you good, David. And then a little bit more self-indulgence. See that pretty lady over there? Why don't you give her a call? A little more self-indulgence and a little more and a little more until he lands himself in sin. And I think this is how Satan often works for us. I think if Satan came to me and said, um, hey, Jim, do you want to get totally plastered drunk and make a bunch of horrible choices? 100% of the time, I would say no. But if he says, hey, wouldn't it be nice to have a beer with your friends on the way home? 
Just a little bit of self-indulgence, right? Well, that doesn't sound so bad. Nothing sinful about that. I think very often uh, temptation begins this way, right? It begins by saying, just indulge yourself a little bit and let's see what happens. So then we get to the third temptation. And the third temptation is different than the first two. Uh, the first two are, hey, just let, let down your self-denial shield a little bit. Uh, and then he says, uh, Sa- Satan says to Jesus, um, look at all the kingdoms of the world. All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. See, now we're into sin, right? There's no question about it. You can't worship anyone but God himself. Satan thinks, I'm going to loosen you up a little bit until you're ready for the big question. Uh, by the way, I don't know if you noticed, um, but the response of Jesus to Satan at this point is pretty strong. He says, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God alone and serve only Him. Um, it sounds very similar to what he says to Peter, right? Get behind me, Satan. Away with you, Satan. And I think part of the reason that Jesus is so incredibly quick and firm and powerful in those moments is He didn't give in earlier. It's easy to say no to sin if you've been saying no to self-indulgence all along. So um, we, we, we get this pretty clear message um, that Jesus believes He's going to be the sort of Messiah um, who doesn't use what He has for Himself. He's a self-denying, self-sacrificing Savior. And that's what Peter doesn't like, and that's why Jesus gets angry with him. And Satan's trying to tempt him into something else. Jesus is interested in self-denial, which is interesting for me because our culture is completely interested in that, right? We we have a a culture that is all in on self-indulgence. I mean, I can get a hamburger and fries and a large sweet tea in about two minutes at McDonald's, right? We got fast food. We got instant messages. We got Amazon Prime next day delivery, which is great. It is great. We have credit cards, so we can buy the stuff that we can't afford yet. We have, you know, quick romantic relationships so we can enjoy the fun stuff without all that yucky commitment. We have a culture wrapped around this idea that if you want something, you should have it, and you should have it right now. Uh, I was laughing recently about um, layaway. Anybody remember layaway? Um, okay, some people, layaway was such an interesting idea. Um, you go, there's something you want, they, they put it away for you, you don't get it then. You pay over time. When you've paid for it fully, then you receive it. Isn't that insane? What kind of monstrous system is that? I want it now. I have a credit card. Like, let's do this thing. Um, I am concerned that our world is asking us to practice self-indulgence all the time. And self-indulgence isn't sin. There's no sin in using a credit card. There's no sin in Amazon Prime next-day delivery, or I would be a really bad sinner. There's no sin in fast food. None of that, right? Um, But what it does is it trains me to say, I want what I want, and I want it now. And the risk is that when the sin choice comes along, I have been primed for it. So Jesus says, hey, um, here's what I suggest. 
Because even in his day, uh, this is a problem. He says, let me give you some suggestions about how you ought to live and follow me. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. What will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? It really says forfeit their soul. What will they give in return for their soul? Let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. See, I think in a world that is all about self-indulgence, we need to practice our self-denial a little bit. So, um, this is where Lent comes in. Uh, I don't know how many folks have, have done the, the practice of, of giving up something for Lent. Um, I have been on again, off again about this over the years. Um, but I really think um, this is an opportunity for us to, to work out our self-denial muscle. Uh, so, um, the, the idea of giving up something for Lent is, is really pretty straightforward, um, but let me give you a few ideas around it. Uh, the, the, the first thing I want to say is when you give up something for Lent, you're not giving up a sin, you're giving up a self-indulgence. This is really important. Please don't say, hey, um, I have a habit of robbing ATMs and I'm going to take 40 days off from that, okay? <laughs> That's not what we're going for. You need to stop doing that, okay? Um, <laughs> No, I, I, a self-indulgence is something that's not a sin, right? but it, it makes me think about me a little more than I want to think about me. So, so that's the first thing. When you give up something, you give up something that's a self-indulgence. Uh, the second thing is when you give up something for Lent, it's really important that you remember um, that's designed to trigger you to pray every time you think about the thing you're not doing. So the goal is not, I would like to lose a little bit of weight for Lent, I'm going to give up sweets. The goal is, maybe I'm going to give up sweets for Lent, and every time I think about how much I want a cookie or a donut um, or a Bricks ice cream, <laughs> I'm going to say, you know what? I want even more than that. Jesus. And I'm going to take a moment and I'm going to say a prayer. And it might be really short. Jesus, you are better than the other good things in my life. And thank you for this reminder, right? And, and it, I might have that prayer 20 times a day. What a privilege to say that prayer 20 times a day. So uh, we give up a self-indulgence. Uh, it's supposed to trigger us to pray. Um, two other little logistical details. Um, this is really going to be good news for you. Um, when you give up something for Lent, you get Sundays off. I don't know if you know this, but you, there are 40 days in Lent. But there's more than 40 days between now and Easter. Because Sundays don't count as part of Lent. So if you give up, let's say, sweets for Sunday, you can still have a donut on Sunday morning, right? You give up sweets for Lent, you can go to Bricks on Sunday and have a large cone and then be very ill afterwards, okay? So that's huge. Uh, and then uh, last but not least, um, if you're interested in giving something up for Lent and you're thinking, Jim, it's the first day I've already missed it, God doesn't care. God doesn't care if you start tomorrow or the next day. The point is to practice flexing your self-denial muscle. Right? And this is really a simple but important idea. Like anything else in our lives, we practice things to get better at them. And if we want to build that muscle of self-denial so that when a real temptation to sin comes along, we're ready to say no, we've got to work it out on a regular basis. 
So here's a really simple, really easy way to say, hey, I'm going to start working that muscle this Lent. I'm going to start working out um, what it means to be a a self-denying follower of a self-denying Savior. Uh, This is a really important idea for me that self-indulgence and self-denial are both muscles. And I think if you want to see what self-denial looks like when it's exercised well, you can look to Jesus as the perfect example. Um, But this week uh, and a little bit of last week, we've seen a great example of what self-indulgence looks like when that muscle is exercised a lot. Uh, And I don't really like to usually do a lot of political stuff, but Vladimir Putin to me is a great example of what self-indulgence looks like when you've been exercising that muscle for a really long time. Here's a guy who has everything he wants, right? All the money he wants, all the power he wants, all the influence he wants. And so, of course, he's going to look and say, hey, there's a country I want. Why shouldn't I have it? I've got everything else I want. I want that too. And, and it's scary to me to see where that goes because I know, though I may never have as much money or influence as, or power as somebody like that has, if I practice self-indulgence my whole life, I'll get to a point where I think like he thinks. By the way, this week we've also seen some really amazing examples of people practicing self-denial. Uh, maybe you've seen these too. I, I've seen pictures of um, men standing in front of military convoys. Uh, I saw a picture of a man um, trying to stop a Russian tank with his hands, which was pretty incredible. Uh, I've seen pictures of women, uh, videos of women, using some language that I can't share in church, um, approaching Russian soldiers and um, I think probably risking their lives to ask them to get out of their country. Uh, I know that there are at least 6,000 500 Russians who've been arrested by their own government because they were protesting the war in a country where it's not legal to protest your government. And I look at all those people and I think, boy, I hope that my self-denial muscle is strong enough that I could take those sorts of choices when I needed to, that like the guy in front of the tank or the people arrested or the women um, berating the soldiers invading their country or like the apostles who risked their lives to spread the gospel or like our Savior who gives His life so that we could have life forever. Those who want to lose, to save their life will lose it and those who lose their life for Christ's sake will find it. So the challenge for us tonight is really quite simple, um, that if we want to be self-denying followers of a self-denying Savior, we have to start practicing. We have to start practicing. Uh, And if we do, um, we may find that when those big moments come along, we're ready to step up and act as Jesus would have acted. I want to end with a little bit of a reflection on those scriptures and a little bit of a closing prayer for us in the form of this video.